The whole idea of Christianity is to go against human nature. You look at what Jesus did. He was beyond human nature. And I hate it that Christians right now are so human. Hmm. It, it does very little to persuade people that, that there is an awesome answer to our spiritual needs in life and that we are spiritual beings. Yeah. Um, when we're nothing more than just like everybody else and can be full of hate and contempt and greed and bitterness, we're supposed to be different. Hi, welcome to the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I'm Paul Swearingen, that nonpartisan evangelical guy. Glad you're with us on the podcast today. And uh, joining me as a, a, a guest, I think will be interesting to talk to today. Janae Huffman Gilreath is running for a state seat in the state of Arkansas, House District 94, uh, as a Democrat. And also, full disclosure, happens to be, I don't know, Janae, what are you? My second cousin, I guess you would be, right? Yeah, I think so. My cousin's daughter. So whatever whatever that is, that's what you are. Um, and is the daughter of a pastor and grew up evangelical Christian and now is running for office and all that stuff. So that's the setup. Janae, glad you're with me on the podcast today. Thank you. It's great to be here. How's the weather in Arkansas? Well, we've got storms rolling in right now, but it's 70 and balmy and windy. Ah, well, I guess I, I, I hear we have some ground moving out here in California. I guess the Bay Area has been rocking a little bit today. But other than that, we're, we're doing, doing well here. So tell me about uh, why you decided to, to run for office. I think this is your second run, right? Yes, this is my second run. I ran in 2018 for the same seat against the same incumbent. Um, the election it doesn't appear that I will be opposed in the primary. So it looks like my election will be November of 2020. November. Um, yes. So why I am running. Um, we've had some extremely far-right individuals um, who've been elected recently into um, our state legislature. And Arkansas was one of 17, I know that number has recently changed, of supermajority houses or um, governments. So all of our executive elected officials in the state of Arkansas, our House and our Senate are all Republican run. And um, it's not from a centrist view. It's from the Tea Party leaning. And um, we have a huge contingency of immigrants within our state and within my district. My district is at least 40 percent um, non-native individuals. And the fear that's being brought about um, for ice raids and stand your ground and um, open carry, um, reducing the availability to health care, even for um, citizens, has created a real hostile environment. And I just could not stand around any longer and allow it to continue. Well, that's interesting because I, I don't know if if out on the West Coast here we would know a lot about Arkansas politics other than Bill Clinton was was governor there and uh, mm -hmm. became president out of there. So it was 
Was it still a pretty conservative state when Bill Clinton was governor there, or has there been a, a shift in the politics? So there's been a shift. So the Democratic Party, um, historically in the state of Arkansas, and we've got some pretty um, shady history <laughs> with our politicians, um, you know, from from being forced to integrate our school um, because of an illustrious governor that we had at the time in, in the 60s, um, on through, Arkansas was still fairly conservative, even though um, the Democrats controlled the state for decades. They were what were called yellow dog or blue dog, depending upon where you were in the state, um, Democrats. And it was they would have voted for anyone, including a yellow or blue dog, if they were a Democrat. Mm. Um, but it was very there. There's historical racism within the state. Um, it's a. Um, I love this state. This state is what I've chosen to call home. Um, and the people really are wonderful. But there's a lot of history here that has become deeply ingrained. We were we were a part of the South, um, even in the Civil War, and we haven't let that go. Hmm. And it's time for change. Yeah, I've uh, I've visited Little Rock Central High School and studied a little bit of the of the history there, and that was one of the big moments in in civil rights when when that school was was forcibly uh, integrated, right? Yeah. The Little Rock Nine. I was very lucky during my college years um, to attend um, one of the anniversary um, anniversaries of the integration of Central High with um, several of our student government leaders and got to meet a couple of the Little Rock Nine along with then President Clinton and uh, First Lady Hillary. Um, I knew very little about it. It's not something that we studied a whole lot in school. Um, but it was incredibly moving, very emotional, hmm. kind of a pivotal, pivotal time in my life, I, hmm. I would say. And I've, I've used the story of that school quite a bit in, in some of my talk. So maybe you can help check me because my understanding is that they integrated the school. What year was that? Oh, shoot. Um, er, I think er, 66. Okay. And my understanding is about 10, it, it took about 10 years or maybe even less. And it was, it became a, a predominantly black high school after that. Is that correct? Correct. So yes. integration came, that's great. But white flight then ultimately left the district because of the integration or maybe in great part because of the integration. Yes. So it was 57, 1957. Okay. I was off. Yeah, that's right. And and so this is this is a little bit of our history and this is interesting. So you you talked about that being a great impact in your life. Uh so tell me about your political history. I know like I said I know your family and your your dad and mom were evangelical leaders of of a church and so you probably grew up with some pretty conservative roots. Yeah, you know, and the funny thing is even in 2001, I'll never forget exactly where I was sitting. I was um, finishing my master's degree at Oxford University and sitting in a little pub on trivia night. And this guy said, we were chatting, big group of us, and he said, so you're an evangelical? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I did, that term was not, um, it just wasn't something that we used. I didn't really know. I knew what 
evangelism meant, meant according to the evangelical church, now that I learned what evangelical is. Um, yeah, so there were some very conservative leanings. We thought we were progressive. Um, you know, we we had short hair and we wore makeup and earrings and, and pants. <laughs> we weren't as conservative as some of the others. Um, but looking back, it was very, our church was very much, now my dad was a bit avant-garde um, within the denomination, especially in Arkansas. And and Paul, your dad and my dad both pastored the same church yeah. in Western Nebraska. <laughs> right. Um, so my family moved from Western Nebraska down to Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is in the far northwestern corner of, of the state and is very different um, both geographically and demographically from the rest of the state. Mm-hmm. Home of the university, um, very close to Walmart, Tyson, J.B. Hunt. So it's very multinational. So all of that to say, you know, we didn't think that we were moving back in time. Um, but we were arrived in Arkansas and we were called the Yankees and that we had moved to the South to change them. And that was the, what the church had said. Um, because it was still very much women could not be a part of leadership. Um, my grandmother, your dad's sister mm-hmm. has been a pastor of the same church for 50 years. And so that was kind of a shock to our system that, the denomination I had always belonged to didn't think that women had any right of leadership. Um, it was also a very um, socially constraining and isolating um, group. Everything that we did revolved around the church pretty much. Um, my mom did teach in public school, so my sister and I attended public school. So that, again, made us an outlier because we weren't a part of the church school or homeschool movement. Mm. Um, but... Outside of that, we were in church three times a week. If we had friends, they were our church friends. If we listened to music, it was church music or, you know, Christian radio. Um, if we read books, it was they were put out by Focus on the Family. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was the Christian alternative to the world. Mm. To, to, quote, be in the world, but not of the world. So we were always on the fringe, not really ever living in society and knowing what the real life was like, the hurt, the pain, um, the trials that go along with with being alive in America. Mm. We, we built our alternate world, didn't we? We really did. So today you're you're running for office as a as a Democrat. And so when did you make a decision to make a party affiliation with the Democrats? Uh, during the Obama era. Okay. <laughs> so um, I was such a staunch Republican, um, so died in the wool GOP. Um, I really thought of myself as a centrist Republican because I believed wholeheartedly in environmental issues like recycling and um, good energy policy um, I couldn't understand why um, the GOP was really pretty anti-female as far as like voting against the Violence Against Women Act and the ERA um, and and the names that they gave women like feminazi, if you wanted to be treated Mm -hmm. equally. Um, So I graduated from, well, while I was in college, I received an internship on the Hill with um, then-Senator Arkansas U.S. Senator um, Tim Hutchinson. Um, 
interned with him, moved back, finished my senior year of college with every intention of getting my master's degree and law degree, and then ending up maybe in D.C. at a think tank. Um, was accepted into grad school and got a phone call the day before graduation um, to come work on the Hill in D.C., and so in two weeks, I packed everything that I owned up and moved to D.C. and worked on the Hill and was extremely green. Um, I was called Pollyanna because, again, I was like, why are we not espousing better energy policies? And why, why are we against violence against women? And, and why are we holding up um, ambassadorships for people who are gay? Because I don't see that them being gay has anything to do with how they can deal with diplomacy. Um, and, and it was during that time period that I started thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I'm too far center to be a full Republican, but I hadn't thought that I was a Democrat at that point. Moved back, um, went, finished up my master's finally at, at Oxford University studying international trade policy, um, had every intention, like I said, to be back in DC, but September 11th happened. And, um, that all of my interviews were canceled um, within two weeks of September 11th, except for one. And I'm so thankful I, I did not get that job. Hmm. Um, it left me in Arkansas, where I was able to really dig deep into people and um, worked in banking for many, for 10 and a half years, um, and got to see what people really went through, um, just trying to make it in the U S and that started the additional eroding of my really, what really were evangelical conservative ideologies that were not necessarily biblical. Hmm. For example, for example, the, um, the whole, if you're the, if you're poor, it's your fault. Hmm. Um, you know, that, that God, you know, we both grew up during that time period of if God blesses you because you're in his will, and if you're not in his will, you're not blessed or you're not healthy or, um, and boy, some of the hardest working people I knew could barely scrape it together. And it was not any fault of their own. It was circumstances that occurred to them. And I just couldn't see how the words of Jesus, I went back and studied the words of Jesus, and he he never came down hard on the poor. He came down hard on the rich, mm -hmm. the people who were stingy and didn't share and didn't take care of individuals. And, um, and he showed a whole lot more grace than the church was showing people. Isn't that amazing? We, we, we have social issues that mean so much to us in the evangelical church that have a handful of verses around them in the Bible. And... Mm -hmm kind of disregarding hundreds of verses, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses about taking care of the poor. And I know I, I have Republican friends that say, no, no, we care about that, but we think there's another way to do it. But um, I, I, it does seem like we're a little out of balance with our understanding of sort of who Jesus was and who he criticized and who he was friends with. Exactly. And, and I, I really struggle having traveled um, a decent amount um, my sister's traveled more than I have, but you see other economic policies that um, are not built around the evangelical 
um, point of view and their people are thriving. They're mm-hmm. doing well. Um, you don't have the extreme rich, but you also don't have the extreme poor. Yeah. And people are living in harmony. And in America right now is missing a whole lot of harmony. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, to be clear, I don't I don't think the Bible is opposed to people having money and wealth and profit. I think all of those things are good. Um, it's it's just where your heart is and how you're how you use that. And I think profit comes with a responsibility for stewardship. I think the Bible's absolutely clear. And and I think a lot of our tax policy would change if people really took the responsibility of profit to, to use it as stewards. And, and uh, so a whole lot of things could change if we did did our job right first, I guess, is kind of where I've always been coming from. Absolutely. I mean, Jesus taught on that when he taught on the talent. Yeah. You know, you don't just bury the talent. Um, he wanted to get returns from it. So he wasn't anti-return or anti-investment. Um, you know, when he spoke to the rich, I'm thinking of the rich young man, and he said, sell all you have and give it to the poor. You know, I think it's, he knew that that was the sticking point for this young man. Otherwise, Jesus was around a whole lot of rich people yeah. that he didn't require that of. But I think it's where, like you said, where our heart is. Jesus is all about the heart. Yeah, He's yeah. all about love. Yeah, and I, I, I always thought, you know, in the story of Ruth and Boaz, you know, the, they were required— to leave the edges of the fields unharvested so that the, the, the poor and the foreigner, by the way, could, could feed themselves from, from the extra of your, of your fields and whatever you dropped as it was being harvested, you had to leave that on the ground for them as well. So God, God maybe mm-hmm. is not quite the full on free market capitalist that we think he is sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I think, in my opinion, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and again, so I, I think there's a center there. And so what I hear you saying a little bit, maybe you, you sort of felt like there wasn't a center where you could land at some point in the Republican Party and, and it caused you to make a change. Yes. And, and our, our current president, um, I, had, I had moved to the undecided or the optional. Right. So in the state of Arkansas, you don't have to declare a party. Um, and so I was no longer affiliated. We have open primaries. I was no longer affiliated with Republican. And even if you are registered as a Republican, you can vote in any primary you want. So um, I moved my registration to optional. And um, it wasn't until really recently that I moved it to Democrat. Um, and it was really with the current presidency. And to be quite honest, um, it was because I didn't want to get phone calls from people who weren't sure exactly what I was trying to, you know, sell me on Republicanism. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good practicality right there. Yeah, I get I get some crazy mailers. I, I'm still I'm registered Republican. I, I actually uh, we have to apply for this real ID now. By 2020, you're not going to be able to fly if you don't have a real ID. And, and so I was renewing my driver's license. And and as you do so, then you renew your, your voter registration here. I'm not sure if that's just a California thing or wherever. And I had to think for a second, okay, am I still a Republican? And uh, I actually <laughs> sort of prayed about it for a moment. And I'm like, all right, I don't feel like I have a, a mandate to change yet. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with it. But I'm... 
I am struggling to think, am I really hanging in there? And, and it's, it has, to me, I am a Republican, as I understand what a Republican is. But the party itself has gone to such an extreme. Uh, and Christianity yeah. along with it, or at least evangelical Christianity, has gone so far with it that I'm, I'm struggling with both of them at this point, to, to be honest, from my perspective. Yeah, I think that's very fair. And I, I honestly, I, we're probably in the minority. Yeah. But I know that we're not alone. Um, you know, the, there are two big, er, two big events that occurred in my life that really made me question my um, political affiliation and my political views, policy views, more or less. Um, in grad school, I read two different books on the fall of the Roman Empire. And one was by Sir Edward Gib- or Edwin Gibbon. And the other um, gentleman's name escapes me. His first name's Peter. Um, I'll find that later and and let you know. But they were both on the the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And they were both huge. I got my master's in public administration. So this was of particular interest to me. How can entire civilizations, entire government structures collapse? And... um, as I was reading both of those books, it talked about the occurrences socially, um, economically, religiously that were occurring BC to AD during the time of the Roman Empire. And it included abortion and infanticide and um, homosexuality. Um, a lot of the, the hot point, a lot of the hot button. Um, ideas, a lot of war, <laughs> you know, ideas that, that, you know, we talk about politically, that we pick up our, our standard and, and we march with. And then I read um, the words of Jesus. I did a Bible study just on how Jesus responded um, in the Bible. And knowing the time frame of history and knowing that Jesus was still a part of the Roman Empire with where he lived mm-hmm. and what he chose to not discuss that it was occurring. And in those books, it talks about even, you know, in um, Tiberius's area and, and the Corinth and, and the things that were going on and Jesus never, ever addressed them. Right. And what I saw Jesus addressing was the hypocrisy and the lack of love and the lack of grace and forgiveness. And then he ends the book of Matthew was probably the most powerful to me. He ends the book of Matthew talking about separating the sheep from the goats and that he was going to do that. And it hit me so hard that my job, one as a Christian and two as as a Christian who is very interested in policy and public policy and economic policy, that I could not live or espouse policies that I saw going absolutely against what Jesus did when the same thing was going on in his era. And so it changed me profoundly. Wow. Wow. So Peter Heather, is that the name of the author? Yes, it is. All right. It is. All right. the Google is amazing. Um, it's about a 600 page book. <laughs> so you have to really want to dive into that. And that's such an, I, I find that fascinating because I, I have this discussion with people and they tell me, well, you can't, you can't build on your theology from the silence of the Bible. 
Um, and so, and so they discount the fact that Jesus never mentioned abortion, never mentioned homosexuality or gay marriage, um, did happen to mention divorce, by the way, but we've sort of made our peace with that one in the church. But, yeah. but to me, you know, I, I, I sort of have this imaginary conversation in my head where Father God is getting ready to send Jesus to earth and he's like, okay, remember the top two issues that we care about are abortion and gay marriage. And I want you to yeah. go to earth and never mention those two items ever and I just find that a little bit hard to believe. And so knowing that, I think possibly we have our priorities a little bit out of whack. Well, you know, if we go back to what what Jesus was about, the heart and relationship, he said a whole lot, mm-hmm. even though he left out those two topics. The woman at the well, one of my favorite stories, I would love to know what he drew in the sand when he bent down. Um, that made all those gentlemen shut up, drop the rocks, and turn around and leave. Mm-hmm. What he said to her was, you're, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. Change your life. But he didn't berate her. He didn't tell her exactly how to do it. He didn't make sure she was doing it. He just showed her that there was kindness and love and that it was not for those guys to exact justice. Yeah, and I think in I think in fact that the tie there is he's like I've chased away your condemners who by law had the right to kill you, and mm-hmm. so now I have the right to condemn you because you owe me your life. I don't condemn you, and so because of all of that condemnation being removed, you can go change your life and live a new life. And so it's a very very different process to get to the go and sin no more that I think we use sometimes, which is our lead, you know, stop sinning. Right. And at very least, Jesus risked his life and his reputation for her, then said, hey, why don't we not come back here again? Let's not do this over. So it's a different Mm -hmm. mindset. Hi, Paul Swearingen here. Hope you're enjoying this conversation I'm having with political candidate Janae Huffman-Gilreath. There's much more where this podcast came from at the website at npepodcast.com. That's the nonpartisan evangelical website, npepodcast.com. Not only are there great podcasts and blogs, but opportunities to join other NPE followers in book discussion groups, Facebook chats, even nights when we have spiritual moments like taking communion together online. I want you to join this community. Go to the NPEpodcast.com and click on the Insiders List button. This will keep you updated on all the latest happenings in the nonpartisan evangelical community. Also, if you do that, I'll give you a free ebook just for shining up. My ebook, The Making of Joseph, will be yours for joining absolutely free. This ebook tells the story of how I wrote my new novel, Joseph Comes to Town, when the religious right goes religiously wrong. And I've thrown in three free chapters of the book to boot so you can check it out before you buy. So pause this podcast right now. Go ahead, pause it. We'll wait. Go to npepodcast.com. We'll be here when you get back. Sign up for that insider's list. Get my free ebook, The Making of Joseph, today. Help us spread this message of a nonpartisan Christianity far and wide. Join the nonpartisan evangelical podcast at npepodcast.com. Now, back to the pod.
Yes, we're talking with Janae Huffman-Gilry. She's running for House District 94 in the state of Arkansas, uh, a Democrat. Um, I have some very, very good friends who are awesome people who love Jesus, who are God followers to the hilt. Uh, Some of them have great histories in the church, have done amazing things. One of them is doing crusades, if I, I hate using that term, but kind of prayer crusades here in our region these days. And they say, you can't be a Christian and be a Democrat because of the stance that the Democrats are a godless party. I think that's what the guy from Dallas said the other day, but, but they have written blogs and things and at very least hint that a Christian can't be a Democrat. And it's interesting to me that you say your faith and reading the Bible actually led you to, be, to become a Democrat. So it's, a, it's a definitely mm-hmm. an interesting ju- juxtaposition. So I, I think you would disagree that a Christian can't be a Democrat. Well, absolutely. Because <laughs> <laughs> you you would claim to be one, I guess. I, I would almost argue just the opposite. <laughs> mm. Well, that's fascinating. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. It, it, it's, so what do, you, what do you think a, a Christian involved in politics looks like? Um, because, you know, there's, there's the, the partisanship part of it, which I think is, is a lot of what I'm fighting against and in, in, in trying to get people to think differently about. Then there are others who say, well, we should just be divorced from politics because Jesus never engaged in it and, and didn't demonstrate that. So how do you see a Christian approach to, to politics? Yeah, so Jesus was very political, um, but he wasn't a part of any group. I mean, he wasn't a part of the Sadducees or the Pharisees um, or the the chief priests, um, but he got right in the middle of stuff and started up, which I think is what politics is kind of about. It's not necessarily... Um, it, I, politics, it takes politics to get good policy. Mm. You have to have that back and forth and that discussion, and Jesus is willing to step into that discussion and... Um, and to really let people know, and I know this is out of Micah, but that what we're required to do is to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly. Mm. And and I I think that was more prophetic than anything else. That was Jesus. He he did justice and he gave mercy liberally. And he was extremely humble. When there was a lack of humility was when he was dealing with the religious leaders. And I think it wasn't necessarily lack of humility per se, and there wasn't hubris to it, but there was a strength to it, um, letting them know that they were not right and that they were looking at the things that the world looks at and not the way God looks at people. Hmm. Yeah, he, he definitely went at the hot-button issues of culture, although— you know, he when they came at him with the taxes, which was one of the big arguments of the culture at the time, he he ref, he, he did refuse to pick a side. I mean, that's what when he you know the give to Caesar what is Caesar's give to God what is God's is, is to me him refusing to be marginalized on one side or the other. Is that is that how you see that? You know, I I actually don't see it that way. Okay, um, I. I see that as a great, (laughs) and here's where where my political side probably comes in, Um, a great um, 
testament to there are structures that you have to take care of giving to Caesar so that Caesar can take care of the people, the infrastructure, the people who are marginalized. And you give to God because the church is supposed to pick up the flag. That's where I'm struggling with the church right now. Um, we have a lot of churches that are not picking up the flag. Mm. And a lot of people that are falling through the cracks that, that our government's not handling or taking care of either. Um, so I think Jesus was really saying we need structure because humans are humans. So you give to Caesar, give to the government, um, and we all have our masters. Um, and then you give to God. Wow. All right. Cool. That's an interesting take on that. I appreciate you sharing that. I'll have to go reevaluate my position on that. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> At very least, I think the the angst around taxes that we have, and I, I and trust me, I hire an accountant every year to make sure I pay the least amount of taxes possible from our household, and I'm all for that. But the the mm-hmm. idea, I think, some of the angst around taxation that we we share, and certainly out here in California, there's there's just passionate hatred of what is a democratically controlled supermajority out here. I think Jesus was mm-hmm. saying, you know, it's probably not quite as big a deal as you're making it out to be. Yeah, because I, I know a lot of Christians who um, who balk about their taxes but don't pay their tithe either. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I know that because I'm a preacher's kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that and that's I like I like looking at that because I was just talking to a pastor friend of mine today, and he was saying, "Well, if you know if such and such happens, then the government's going to come in and force us to do such and such." And and I was saying, "Well, well, how do they do that? They do that through your tax exempt status, and you're worried about your tax exempt status from being threatened." And my answer to that is, where in the Bible did God promise us that we would have a tax-exempt status? You know, if you feel like you have to take a stand yeah. against the government, then you take a stand against the government. And, and certainly that's biblical at the, at the right moment in time. And if people are just giving money to the church to get a tax deduction, and don't get me wrong, I think that's great. That's a good heart of our country. But, but if that's the only reason they're giving, then something's probably out of line there as well. Completely agree. Now, this is a conversation my dad and I have had. Um, my family has um, all come to kind of the same political um, ideology and thought. We spent a lot of time around the dinner table discussing this stuff. Um, my dad is a voracious reader. My sister is the most brilliant person I've ever met in my life. And so we had some very heated discussions. Um, but we all started reading and praying and, and, and really thinking about stuff. And, and my dad's comment was, if I'm concerned about tax-exempt status, is that not a form of greed? Yeah. If I'm worried about money, then then that's a problem. God provides. God provides. And the church of all places needs to realize that God provides. Yeah. Well, I think if I, I, I mean, I think of that, that passage where Jesus said, you know, they're giving so that it can be seen and, and they're getting their reward now. So they're, they're losing the mm-hmm. reward they could have from a spiritual perspective. And I, I wonder sometimes if our tax exempt status and the ability to get a tax deduction by giving into the church doesn't take away some of our spiritual reward of that. And, well, I'd agree with that. And, and I think that is, well, I don't know about the spiritual side being proven out, but um, the recent studies, I read it just this week, show that 
charitable giving in the United States since the revision of the tax code in the past year or so um, under Trump's changes in deductions, um, charitable giving has drastically dropped, wow. and it, especially in certain areas. Um, if we're giving only to get, is it really giving? And, you know, the widow gave of that might, that itty-bitty penny, um, and it was all that she had. And Jesus said that she gave more than anybody else. Um, my husband and I, Chris and I, were talking just this week weekend about are we giving until it hurts? You know, if we're just paying our 10%, we've already budgeted in, we don't even realize that we're missing that 10%. Are we really doing what Jesus commands of us? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think about when uh, the part of the Bible where Moses was asking them to give to build the tabernacle, and they ultimately had to tell people to stop giving because we have more than enough. And I wonder mm-hmm. if, if Christians had that heart. Um, I, you know, I would love to see a church say to their city, you know, we don't owe taxes because of our not-for-profit status, but we're going to give money to the city anyway because we want to help, and we're going to give it to you with the idea that you get to do whatever you feel is right with it instead of earmark it for something. I, I, I just think these are amazing testaments to who our God is that would be much stronger than our, our stances on social issues. So I, let's get kind of radical on this stuff. What the heck? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I totally agree with that. I mean, we were called to be a different people. Yeah. The whole idea of Christianity, the whole idea of being Christ-like or like God is to go against human nature. I mean, that the you look at what Jesus did, he was beyond human nature. Um, he was of God. And um and I hate it that Christians right now are so human. Hmm. It, it does very little to persuade people that, that there is an awesome answer to our spiritual needs in life and that we are spiritual beings. Yeah. Um, when we're nothing more than just like everybody else and can be full of hate and contempt and greed and bitterness, we're supposed to be different. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I'm i convinced that God would love to see the number of abortions in America go down. It already is way mm-hmm. down from when Roe v. Wade first uh, was first in, instituted. But I'm not sure a law banning it is the way he wants to do it. No, a prohibition on alcohol didn't make everybody stop drinking. Right. Um, prohibiting murder um, has not stopped murders from occurring. Right. You know, we we can't say that we are going to do something and it changes the heart of people. The hearts of people are changed by how we treat them and how we react. Um, and, and through the move of the Holy spirit and, and the Holy spirit, I think is, is, is vitally important, um, in our lives right now. Um, I know, and this is coming from a Democrat and that's hard to believe, <laughs> but, but we have to be sensitive and, to the hurt that's around us and, and give hope. I mean, we have amazing opportunity and we shouldn't always be looking at the bad and the negative and always um, searching for ways to punish or restrict. Let's come alongside and let's provide um, the grace and the hope that's in Jesus rather than the condemnation that's already in the world. 
Yeah, that's that's good. And so interesting, you were talking about moving from sort of this Republican upbringing and and early young adult life to moving to Democrat. And ultimately, you said it was the current president that that was sort of the final straw of moving to to become a register as a Democrat. <laughs> Why? Tell me about that. Okay, so I'm going to use a term, and I don't mean this in the um, noun form, but more in the adjective form. Um, our current president is more anti-Christ, not the anti-Christ, but more anti-Christ than, than mo- any other human being I can recall having witnessed. Hmm. Um, he, everything that Christ was, our current president is not. Um, there's no purity of heart. There's no compassion. There's no um, giving of oneself. There's um, no humility. Um, and I think those things epitomize what Christ was, and none of those could be used to describe our current president. Hmm. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm just soaking all that in. That is, uh, and you're going to be getting the emails on that one, aren't oh, you? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, <laughs> it's just I'm just hearing all these things in my head from all these people I know who say he's King Cyrus. Yes, he's rough. Yes, he. I wish he wouldn't tweet, um, but the economy's good, and he's going to appoint the right Supreme Court justices. And he's a baby Christian. So shouldn't we have grace for him in the midst of all of that? You know, Jesus didn't have a whole lot of grace for the persecutors. And um, and for the self-proclaimed righteous, Jesus had no grace for them. Um, and where I really struggle is our, having been a banker, <laughs> yeah. um, our economy is not good. Um, it's hyperinflated. Um, the, the, if you look at the Dow, yeah, the Dow has increased, but it goes through violent swings, which is not a sign of a healthy economy. There's not a steady growth. Um, our unemployment numbers are skewed because we have a lot of people who've been out of employment for so long that they've fallen off the rolls. Mm. Um, it's, we are at a strange, strange point in our history economically, um, and I, I think it's a very dangerous point. We have a lot of profit taking that's occurring, which also helps with getting the stock market. And if we're only judging our economy on what the Dow is doing, that's a very shallow way to look at our economy. Yeah. That's not somebody who's studied economic policy. And, and by the way, that is a, a Republican and Democratic problem. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, ignorance is not um, relegated to one party or or one affiliation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I always say Nathan didn't go to David and say, "Hey, that Bathsheba thing you did was really bad, but the economy's good, so it's okay." Uh, you know, it, it, yeah, he, he called him out, and and that's the whole thing. I, 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 people can support the president, and and we honor the president because he's the president. I totally agree with that, but to never, I mean, to have to defend everything. 
and, and particularly now, and, and I think some of it is it concerns me that people are reading these conspiracy theory websites and things to mm-hmm. to not be able to look and say, okay, this this thing with Ukraine is just bad. You know, let's at least call him out and say that's not okay. Um, and, right. And the fact that that we're so beholden to party affiliation that that we're missing even the simplest things shows me that, uh, again, something's out of whack in the evangelical church. There's a definite blindness yeah, or, or a blind spot. Yeah. Where does that come from, you think? <laughs> I think it's a spiritual thing. Yeah. Um, but I also think that people really struggle with putting in putting their money on the wrong horse. Mm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's hard. It's really hard for people to admit that they were wrong. Uh. And, and especially if you've really touted that God told you to vote for this man. And, and, and then if you see that he is behaving the way he is, um, then to, to change your tune, I think is, is, I don't know. There's there is a blindness there, and I don't know if it's just human or if it really is spiritual. Yeah. Well, there, the, the book of Isaiah talks about not having eyes to see or ears to hear. Jesus said the religious leaders of his day were those guys. They had lost their ability yeah. to see what God was doing in a particular time in history, and I, I think we're there. I think we're at a very similar time. Um, even I believe the Pharisees believed God's purpose was to make their country great again. I, I think they they believed the Messiah was going to come and make Israel great again, uh, and, and that wasn't the purpose of God. And I wonder if that's the purpose of of God today. And in the midst of this, people are saying, and and some listen aren't biblical scholars that listen to the show. Uh, evangelical leaders are saying this is King Cyrus, who was a pagan king that paid the money to rebuild Jerusalem. And uh, but I say he's more King Saul. I think he's I think he's the king we asked for. Uh, the Israelites were given uh, the, the Hebrews were given a king they asked for, and it turned out to be a really bad king. And I think we've been given the king we asked for. I think you're exactly right. That's interesting. So you ha- you're you living in a very Republican state, running as a Democrat. You ran as a Democrat before and came up came up short in that one. How difficult mm-hmm. is it to operate in, in that environment as a Democrat? Well, so luckily I've been, well, I wouldn't say luckily. I have been very ingrained and very much a part of the community um, that I live in. I live in a town called Rogers which is in the far northwestern corner. Um, it's the most, most northwestern county in the state. Um, Rogers is adjacent to Bentonville. Bentonville is the home of Walmart and Sam's Club. Um, so we have, we have a pretty diverse community here. Um, we have a lot of apathy among voters, which I think is, well, I know it's across the United States as you read about um turnout for elections and um, and civic engagement. Um, getting people to understand that there, there are people out here who don't think what's going on is right and that um, their voice is being heard and they have a champion and someone who's willing to stand up and say, um, 
No, we need to take care of everyone. Um, I've been very welcome. Now, the, the extremists um, will never like me. Um, they may like me as a person until they find out I'm a Democrat. And then it's amazing how quickly things change. <laughs> but individuals who are reasonable and, and have been friends of mine for quite some time, and we never talked politics, even those who have been very staunchly Republican have supported me wholeheartedly because mm. they know me and they, they, they feel like they know my heart. And, and I believe they do. I'm, I'm what you see is what you get with me, um, which is not always good, <laughs> but, but I am what I am. And um, it's, uh, it's very doable. Um, our race last time was less than 12 points different fewer than 800 votes. Mm. Um, we had a very small turnout um, among our registered voters. So we're doing a lot of voter outreach and education. Um, we're spending a lot more time in the community, um, even more than I do professionally and, and civically, just to try to, um, one, I want people to know that, that I believe this should be and is a welcoming community. Mm. And, um, whether I win or not, I want people to know me as someone who cares. So I'm doing this obviously to win. I'm not doing it for my health <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I'm doing it hard and I, I know I'm moving the needle. That's cool. Well, definitely tip of the cap to you for, for being brave to run in, in this environment. And I think when, when I hear you saying politics and politics makes good policy, you're certainly not talking politics from a antagonistic perspective or a, 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 a compromising of your values perspective, but it sounds like politics, and maybe I should just ask you to define it, but it sounds like what you're saying is, is that wrangling of ideas and saying, I believe this, you believe this, let's, let's get together and wrestle that out and figure out where some common ground in the middle of that is. How, how would you define politics as, as you're using that term? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I loved your wrangling, getting it all in there and wrangling. <laughs> um, I would not have come up with that word, but I love that. I might have to steal that. Go for it. Um, I really, I believe politics, good politics and good policy come from individuals coming in and willing to discuss why they believe what they believe. You know, why do I believe that, you know, X, Y, Z, or this legislation is good or bad because we all come from a different, we should in legislatures, which we've not seen historically, but we all should come from a different point of view so that when we come together and we create policy, it should reflect something that takes care of the majority and not the minority that takes care of the whole rather than the chosen few. Mm. And if you just have group think, you're not going to create good policy because you're going to have a lot of areas that you've not even considered. Wow. And, and we've lost that idea that Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan could passionately argue and angrily Absolutely. battle against each other and then have a drink together at the end of the day. You know, when I was in D.C., um, I was in um, Dirksen Senate office building and really close to quite a few of the hearing rooms. And weekly, I would see um, Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy walk down the hall together because they were headed for lunch. 
And the two of them, I found out later, had formed a really close friendship and relationship during a lot of Ted Kennedy's very tumultuous and um, dark years. Warren Hatch was kind of a, um, a lifeguard for him. And, and I doubt if I went to the Hill today, most of my friends have left the Hill because it's just not the same place it used to be. Um, I don't know that I would see the same thing. Two polar opposites on the political spectrum, caring about each other, sharing their deepest, darkest secrets, and having lunch together. I, that needs to come back. Well, that's, and that leads into sort of my last question for you. I, I don't like to acknowledge a problem without prescribing some opportunity for change. So how, how do we heal all of this? How, how do we come together and everybody agrees we're divided. Nobody believes they're a part of the divide. How do we heal this thing in the United States? Yeah. So um, for me, that's taking a whole lot of prayer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and pouring myself more into others, less about what my um, ideology is and more about meeting the needs. Um, for a lot of individuals who have, um, emotional distress, counselors often prescribe volunteerism because if you give to others, it takes your mind off your own issues. Mm. And I think if, if we can get back, if we can reach out toward the other side and if we can come at them with, and them being all of us, each other, um, and, and realize that we are, um, we're one, all human. And I think a lot of humanity has been lost. Um, in America, historically, we've struggled with the thought of humanity. Um, if we can come back and treat each other as humans and show each other love and grace that we would want, treat others as we would want to be treated, it's going to heal a whole lot. Hmm. Yeah. I, and I think even, I think you said it, that the church, Christians are called to be otherworldly, to, to reflect who we say we follow. And I think if we really did that and, and sort of laid down our political weapons, we're willing to die to our stuff in order to heal. Because our, our leader, Christ, that's how he did it. He died for, for us. And if we were willing to die for our culture, and lay down some of our weapons and some of our social fights and, and pick up the service of others, I think that could go a long way in healing things in a really short period of time. Oh, I completely agree. Some are Rotarian as well, and Rotarians have a four-way test, which I think should be recited in every church. <laughs> but <laughs> the first one is, is it the truth? The second is, is it fair to all concerned? Number three is, will it build goodwill and better friendship? And number four, will it be beneficial to all concerned? Rotarians are supposed to think, act, and do business in that manner. I think if Christians would think, act, and live life in that manner, we could go a long way. (laughs) 
I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, Join us all the time on the NPE Podcast and check out all the great things we have on the npepodcast.com website. I do great blogs on there, modern day parables. I do the WTH podcast, which is the week that happened, where we review current events going on from a Christian perspective and a whole lot more. Check it out at the nonpartisan evangelical website, npepodcast.com. Sign up on the insiders list, get my free ebook, The Making of Joseph, and three free chapters of uh, Joseph Comes to Town when the religious right goes religiously wrong. We'll throw in for free to boot. That's npepodcast.com, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I'm Paul Swearingen. See you soon.